Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Answers from the Lab, where we share Mayo Clinic knowledge and advancements on the state of testing and science from laboratory leaders and the people who are making it happen behind the scenes. I'm Dr. Bobby Pritt, Interim Chair of the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Today, we are joined by Dr. Ellie Thiel, the Director of the Infectious Diseases Serology Laboratory here at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Dr. Thiel is a frequent guest on our podcast. So Ellie, it is great to have you back again. Thank you for joining us. Sure, happy to be back. So let's talk this time about dengue and chikungunya virus. We've talked about a variety of topics, fungal infections most recently, but now we're hearing more about infections with these two viruses. So what causes the outbreaks that we have been hearing about in South America? And uh, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about what's been going on. It's a pretty tough situation in South America right now. The number of arboviral infections, which is primarily dengue and chikungunya, have skyrocketed. So just really quickly, in all of 2022, they had a total of about 3.1 million cases of wow. dengue and chikungunya and Zika. Currently, to date, they South America has had about 2.2 million cases already and over 300 deaths. So it's, it's a big problem. So again, the two viruses we're talking about are dengue virus and chikungunya virus. And the cause for these outbreak, it's really a combination of factors, including just unusually warm and rainy conditions recently in certain parts of South America, particularly in Peru, which alongside kind of a localized coastal El Nino effect has really allowed the Aedes aegypti um, and other Aedes species mosquito populations to really explode. And these are the mosquitoes that transmit both of these viruses. And then also we have the concern over just generally rising temperatures all over the globe that has allowed 80s mosquitoes to really overwinter in geographic regions that they don't typically inhabit. And that has basically led to more and more populations being exposed to these viruses, which have not had um, prior infections and so lack immunity. So that's another reason we're seeing more uh, infections as well. And then finally, poverty in some of these regions is a big problem. A lot of people that live in some of these places don't have access to running water, and so they save their water in giant drums. Well, those are really great breeding areas for mosquitoes, particularly 80 species mosquitoes, where the larvae only need a couple of millimeters to survive. So it's really this kind of combination of factors that has led to this explosion in, in cases. Wow, that's a really good description, and it uh, makes me worry about the upper Midwest and if dengue and chikungunya will ever come up this far. But uh, maybe you could just tell us about the U.S. in general. Have there been cases in the U.S. this season? So, so far in the U.S., according to the CDC, we've had three locally acquired cases, so nothing too concerning, but we've had over 250 travel-associated cases mm -hmm. to date. And so you can imagine what the numbers we're talking about in South America, those, those kind of travel-associated cases from returning travelers are likely, or we wouldn't be surprised to see an increasing number over the next few months with all the summer travel that's happening. 
Well, you know, that's a really good point. And we've also, a different topic we've been seeing is malaria in the news. And I think it's important to know that we have the mosquitoes that can transmit viruses, parasites, a number of harmful pathogens in the United States. So even imported cases could potentially be a risk if then those individuals got bitten by a mosquito. Exactly. Well, that brings me to my next question of let's talk about transmission. We've talked a little bit about the 80s mosquitoes, but how are the viruses transmitted? Can you tell yeah. us more about that? Yep. So um, again, 80 species mosquitoes are the primary vector for chikungunya and dengue. But what's really important to remember is for both of these viruses is that humans are the primary host, meaning that during an infection, you or I, if we get infected, we will develop a high enough viral load in our bloodstream that if a naive mosquito bites us, they will get infected and could potentially transmit the virus to another individual. Now that's in contrast to other viruses that we more commonly think about here in the US like West Nile virus or St. Louis encephalitis virus, where birds or other kind of avian species, waterfowl, they are the primary host. So the mosquito bites the bird, the infected bird, and then can transmit the infection to the humans. But we do not develop a high enough viral load where a naive mosquito can get infected from biting us if we're viremic with West Nile virus and transmit it. So again, transmission cycle is mosquito, human, mosquito. So that's really important to understand because these differences have implications for disease monitoring as well as both mosquito and infection control that's done by our various different government agencies. Yeah, it's really interesting how these different life cycles work for the viruses. Now, let's talk about what happens when a human is infected with either dengue virus or chikungunya virus. What symptoms would you expect with these infections? Yeah, so initially symptoms are going to be somewhat nonspecific. If people are going to develop infections, typically going to be a fever, kind of those classic flu-like symptoms, but chikungunya and dengue do have some key differences. So for chikungunya, the vast majority of people that are infected are going to be symptomatic. So over 70% of patients yeah. are going to develop symptoms, whereas with dengue, roughly half of people may remain asymptomatic entirely. For chikungunya, there's some key symptoms that develop. One is a maculopapular rash. Also kind of the key thing with chikungunya is high fever and severe polyarthralgia, particularly in the small joints. And that can be pretty debilitating. And because of that association, actually the name chikungunya, it's a word from the African Makandi tribe. And the word means that which bends up. So you just mm. can't really bend your small joints very well. So that's a key feature of chikungunya, unfortunately, and can be really painful. With dengue, um, on the other hand, again, you have an acute febrile stage, pretty high fever. Most people will go on to kind of resolve that infection. Some individuals, though, may go on to develop a critical stage of dengue virus, which alongside that fever, you get onset of nausea, vomiting, body aches, as well as this positive tourniquet test, which is essentially a sign of very fragile capillaries. And then some individuals will then go on to develop severe dengue, which includes development of pretty severe symptoms like plasma leakage, hemorrhage, uh, loss of organ function. That's really in the kind of later stages of severe dengue, and it can quickly lead to death if not treated. 
Yeah, so, I think of dengue as one of those severe hemorrhagic fevers, maybe not in the same category as Ebola and Marburg, but pretty scary nonetheless. I do know someone that had chikungunya and they were a, a resident and they felt like their joints were those of a 90 year old person mm -hmm. with severe arthritis. They could hardly get out of bed and yet they were a resident and they had to get up and go see patients. And so both could be terrible. I wouldn't wish them on anyone. No. So how do we diagnose them? What tests do we offer here in our department of lab medicine and pathology to help our physicians and our patients in diagnosing yeah. their disease? Yeah, so we have kind of the full gamut of testing available. For both of these viruses, we have both molecular assays and serologic assays. So molecular testing with the RNA detection, obviously that is recommended kind of in the acute stages mm -hmm. of disease when patients have a high viral load. So typically anywhere within the first seven-ish to 10 days is when molecular testing is probably going to be most sensitive. For both uh, dengue and chikungunya, after that stage, we have serologic testing to detect IgM and IgG class antibodies. So again, this is kind of for the later stages when viral load may not be as high and patients have developed a uh, detectable immune response. For dengue, for some areas that don't offer dengue PCR testing, there is an antigen test available, NS1 antigen detection in blood. The release of that antigen actually overlaps with the viral viremic phase of infection, mm -hmm. which is not, not surprising. So if molecular testing isn't available for dengue, the recommendation would be to order an NS1 antigen test as those should be positive at, a, at around the same time. So we have, again, serology and molecular testing, and it's really important to know the duration of symptoms for your patient to help guide which of those types of tests you should order and when. Yeah, it's a nice array of testing that we have, and we offer all of those. Now, in resource-limited settings, I know sometimes I'll use the NS1 antigen test, as you mentioned, just as a quick way to detect early infection. So we're talking about detecting infection. Why is it important to detect infection, particularly early on in managing these infections? Right. So there's no targeted antiviral treatment for mm -hmm. either of these viruses. They both really rely on supportive care, which is critical in cases of severe dengue. But it's also important to identify these in order to discontinue any use of unnecessary antibiotics but yeah. also it helps us kind of keep track of where we're seeing these infections and diseases from an epidemiologic perspective. So for all of those reasons, it's important to be able to diagnose these viruses quickly and accurately. Yeah. This is a lot of great information. Where would you point physicians or even patients in the general public to if they wanted to learn more about these viruses? Yeah, so because of the current outbreaks, the World Health Organization, as well as the Pan American Health Organization, or PAHO, are keeping a really close eye on cases, updating case counts on a weekly basis. So both of those agencies, their websites are being kept up to date continuously. So that's a great resource for information. And because of those numbers being so high, both local and international news outlets have picked up the stories and are keeping close tabs on those, which again, I think is really important for travelers this summer. If you're going down to South America, maybe check those websites and see what the current outbreak situation is before you go. 
Yeah, and it, let's say that you know you're traveling to one of these endemic areas and you can't change your travel plans. How would you prevent infection? Are there vaccines? There is a vaccine, but before relying on the vaccine, the only way to really prevent infection is to prevent mosquito bites. So you yeah. want to be packing your insect repellent. Dr. Pritt, you introduced me to the insect repellent wipes. Yeah, um, the pacaridin so, wipes. I love yes, those. Those are wonderful. Long sleeves, long mm -hmm. pants, which nobody wants to wear in summer, but they are protective. And then I believe you can also buy permethrin treated clothes, which would also uh, potentially help. But as you mentioned, there is a vaccine for dengue virus, the uh, Dengavax, and it is FDA cleared, but it's cleared for a very specific group of individuals. It's cleared for children aged 9 to 16 who have had a previously confirmed, laboratory confirmed infection with dengue virus. So that really narrows down <laughs> the group yeah. of individuals that can get this vaccine. And I should say that those particular individuals that also live in an endemic area, which for the U.S. would include a number of um, territories. So you and me, well, we're not 9 to 16 anymore, but um, <laughs> um, not Just everybody. 28, what can I say? Yeah, yeah well, <laughs> so there is a vaccine, but it is for a very well-defined group of individuals. So preventing mosquito yeah, bites. Yeah, preventing mosquito bites. Well, you and I have talked about this many times in the view of mosquito-borne diseases like West Nile, but also tick-borne diseases. So probably just, I tell people now, consider it something you do when you go outside, you put your sunscreen on, and then you should also consider some sort of insect or tick repellent. Just make it part of your routine. You know, I just had a thought. They should combine sunscreen <laughs> insect repellent in one product. That doesn't smell that weird. That doesn't smell, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. You know what? If this medicine business for you and I doesn't work out, we'll, we'll start a business. and this and is plan B. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you, Dr. Thiel. I'm inspired and uh, learned a lot. And I think that this is great information for our listeners. Thank you again for being on the podcast today. Thank you, Dr. Pritt. Thank you so much for tuning in to Answers from the Lab. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to tune in every Thursday and every other Tuesday.